0: We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to match make your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes, so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now, So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say, I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Hi, and welcome back to Reclamation Radio. I am Dr. Kelly Brogan, and I am here with the one, the only, the man, the legend, Aubrey Marcus. Oh. And the tables have turned, motherfucker. <laughs> so now, now you're in the hot seat. And we have had some really, really enlivening conversations on your program. And I want to really almost like pass the baton to myself in a way mm-hmm. to continue the conversation, but through your lens. I mean, there's so many things clearly that I could talk to you about, and it's really an honor to have this time with you. And you have played a very significant role in my process of ending the war with men, I call it, Mm. and recognizing the fear at the root of my activism and really committing to resolving patterns of resentment and bitterness and disappointment that I have experienced throughout my entire life with men. And so I think that you are really a perfect ambassador for (laughs) for the male gender. And I want to really talk to you about what it's like, what it's like in the modern moment. We're just talking a bit about the modern moment before we went live. So what what it's like in the modern moment to be a man. And I wanna zoom in first on roles. Right? Mm. I know that you also see life in terms of archetypes. And I would like to hear a little bit about what you perceive to be, you know, let's talk about your role, but perhaps just a man's role in general, the idealized man with regard to his woman, you know, with regard to his community mm-hmm. and with regard to other men, because it's probably not the same, I would imagine, in all of those different avenues. So I would like to start there and just really dive in on this juicy topic. Yeah, well
1: that's a that's a broad that's a broad spectrum of things to cover. So I think the first thing to highlight is that to be in the fullness of your of your masculinity and as a man, you have to be in touch with your feminine and you have to keep those roles in balance. And those who know me like really well in the deep understand that. I have a highly developed queen, as well as a highly developed king, and a highly developed lover, as well as a highly developed warrior, and a highly developed magician, as well as a highly developed mystic. And there's differences between these kind of archetypes, and I like working with these archetypes. But the first I think that's important that I don't think a lot of people get is the idea everybody conflates king and queen by the gender, the biological gender of the person but actually they're different archetypes fundamentally. And the king is in the Hebrew lineage is teferit. It's the masculine principle. And it's the principle that drives forward. It's the principle that makes decisions and can execute from a place of deep, deep stability. Like when everything is falling around and crumbling, like everybody looks to the king. And the king then at that point rallies in in the historical metaphor rallies and says, rally to me you know, all those in fear, all those are weak, rally to me. And then the king charges forward. You think of, you know, Lord of the Rings and Aragorn, the king of Gondor, you know, it's like rally to me and we'll charge forward. And that's this, this kind of king energy, but that's also available to a biological woman. That doesn't mean that she's in her queen. She could be in her ruling king or her warrior king archetype, but it's not necessarily the queen. The queen is you know, while while the king is charging, let me make sure that the king is supported in every way. That his eros is full, and that his fuck has been fully activated and freed. And let me take care of the rest of the kingdom: those who can't fight, and those who need shelter and support. And all of them rally to the queen. So, so the queen stays behind and stay with me. You know, children, stay with me. You know, those who cannot fight, and I'll be, you know, I'll be the, I'll be there for you to support you, to nurture you, and, and all of that. And there's different, both of those roles need to be activated to actually be a good king or to be a good queen and to understand that there's a masculine principle of a queen, which is actually the, the king within the feminine or a feminine principle within the masculine, which is the queen. And those royal archetypes are just the highest fruition of that certain principle of leadership that kind of comes across. So that's one element that I think people can help them with a kind of, map that I think is important because all the time people talk about like, I want to be a queen. I want to be a king. Well, they're different actually. And it doesn't depend on your biology. They're just archetypes that you can really develop. So, you know, that's kind of one, you know, one principle that I like to work with and kind of talk about.
0: I love this clarification because in my 10 years of private practice, probably it was like halfway through, you know, that decade that I began to see that the energy that I was holding as, you know, you and I talk a lot about like dom sub dynamics and these polarities. So it, as the leader, right, as the clinician, as the MD, as the one in the seat behind the desk, I sometimes joke, that's why I became a psychiatrist so that it'd be harder to, to find mm-hmm. out that I'm crazy because I'm behind the desk. <laughs> but anyway, that I was playing a father role like that I actually, and I wasn't just this like strong mother guiding, you know, these women with this nurturance. It was actually the father archetype that I held those 10 years. And it was always very confusing to me. And this is such a helpful clarification because the simultaneous development of those two inner archetypes, it sounds like you're saying in a balanced way that you can recruit in a given scenario at will, right?
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, You have to listen to the both, listen to the situation. So both are in service to a higher recognition of the field, capital F field. And so the field could be on the lower level of just kind of listening to the emotional energy, but it could also be in service to the higher field, which you would call God or the universe or source or the mystery, whatever name you want. But there's a deep listening that happens on both sides. The listening for when to thrust forward and when to receive. You know, and both of those are, are very important. Now, for me, I spend most of my time in the king archetype. That's what the kingdom is asking from me. And especially lately, it's like really show up as that kind of, you know, as no matter the chaos, you can count on me. I can count on the me and the stability and in the leadership and whatever I can do. So it doesn't mean that you have to spend an equal amount of time in each polarity. It just means that both, you know, really to be in your fullness have to be really developed in a powerful way. And then from there, you have to understand like what you'll end up attracting in a partnership is ideally someone who likes to spend and thrives in spending the majority of their time in the other archetype. But if they don't have at least a bit of your archetype and they don't really understand, then you won't really understand each other and you won't really get each other and you won't be able to cover for each other when you need to you know there's certain times where i just i can't do it you know let's say we're having a a group that's coming together you know at the house and like i just can't show up and i can't be you know vi has to show up and be the king and lead people through whatever they need to be led through and kind of hold the center of it and um and then i'll emerge when i have the time so there's places that she can step up and be the king and there's places where I can step up and be the queen and just be there for her and then like nurture and support her like when she's doing a big performance I'm like fully in my queen role it's like whatever you need you need water you need me to just you know rub your shoulders you need to be there so I'll step into that so it's important to have both but also Vailana is you know, more comfortable when she's just allowed to be her queen allowed to just flow and be in the natural flow of things. So if it's 80-20 one way or the other, which probably it is, then I've found someone who also enjoys being 80-20 in the queen. And when it gets difficult and we have challenges in the relationship, it's when, you know, I'm in my king and she's in her king. And then we're nobody's being the queen to anybody. And then there's you know, not enough nurturing that's happening in the relationship. And it's actually, we don't have the polarity. So actually our eros drops, a lot of things drop. And of course, the sexual models the erotic, right? But it does not exhaust the erotic. That's what, you know. Mark Gaffney is part of like a core tenant of his dharma. So in the bedroom, we actually get to exaggerate our polarities often sometimes we don't sometimes we're just rolling around in a kind of very fluid you know more 50 50 type of situation but oftentimes we'll exaggerate it to you know 99 and one percent you know where i'm like strongly in my masculine dominance and she's strongly in her feminine and that charge that's created when you stretch the polarity out to its maximum is intense and actually recalibrates you know, the comfort of us being in those different polarities. So that's a, it's a great, like, I can't imagine those relationships that don't have this strong sexual connection that can really play with polarity. It's, it's very difficult, I think, to like recalibrate and actually balance and move the energy in anywhere that things are stuck.
0: Absolutely. No, I mean, it's such a technology, right? And yep. not only for generating a field between the two of you that Impacts your entire environment, but also, yeah, within your intrapersonal realm. How does this sort of archetype switching, if you will, manifest with your brothers, like with your men in your life? Do you see it as simply hierarchical? Is it an alpha, beta type of thing? Or does the the sort of king, queen polarity sit with the community, with your woman? And there's an invocation of some other energies when you're interacting just with other men?
1: So I think the core for me of like the deepest friendships is I want to be, you know, just for someone to really feel like my peer, they have to have, you know, a highly developed king. Like they have to have that element. And it's nice when they have some development as a queen, when they can just actually show up in radical support. And I think You know, one of my brothers, I think of the two different Aaron's, you know, actually who are, you know, my brother kings, but Aaron Alexander has a very highly developed queen inside of him, right? He's there to, you know, he'll do acro yoga for me or do some body work or just sit there and talk to me and, and then other times he can step forward and we can be kings that are just like challenging each other. So we're always competing in everything. It could be like, there could be two You know paddle boards, and we get on there, and we'll wrestle on the paddle boards and try to throw each other off, or we'll play, you know, any type of sport or swords or whatever it might be, that we'll compete and we'll do like mock sparring, you know, just where we'll go out and we'll spar against each other, and it's like this: there's an element of competition that exists as a foundation, like foundational substrate that allows men to actually feel each other in a certain way. This is the for men, I think. Competing is like fucking for a man and a woman. Like, there's no way that I'm ever as intimate with a man as a friend if I haven't, if I don't find any way to compete with them. Now, the other thing, the other way that you can do it is you can mutually go through hard stuff together. So it's like initiatory rituals, you know, sweat lodges, medicine journeys, things like that. But finding a way to genuinely compete fosters like the greatest level of intimacy because you really get to know each other. And also you get to strengthen each other. There's there's a real iron sharpens iron principle where man, not only do they compete, but we'll always be, you know, in a loving way, like talking shit to each other. Like shit talking is probably like at least half of the communication that I do with my friends, you know, and we'll, and we're always doing that. If we find a sensitive spot, it's not that we avoid it. We just kind of lightly keep pressing, keep pressing, keep knowing that there's a place where like it'll go too far and then there'll be like real aggression and knowing there's a place in competition that'll go too far. Like one of the rules I have about what you talk shit about and what you compete about is like, don't talk shit about actually being able to fight and beat each other up, right? Like that's like a, such a, such a sensitive area that like, there's no way that you can, cause you can't actually resolve it. There's no resolution to it. So if you start talking about who could actually win in a fight or who could like kill the other person, you never able to resolve it. So there's this like tension. So there's certain things that are off the table, but everything else is like radically on the table. And that forms like the basis of masculine intimacy. And also this crucible that allows you to actually really feel each other and kind of trust each other in a in an interesting way to be like all right what happens when you are pressed what happens when you're tired what happens at the end of that game when you're both exhausted and it's you know 16 16 and a game to 21 and it's your fifth game and it's hot and you both want to quit like what does your brother have inside them like what emerges you know like how how do you fight to the end or is there a quit somewhere in them that you find and it's okay if there is but like I want to know that about my brothers I want to know that I can trust them no matter what comes so that's kind of the the big difference that I see in the masculine to masculine relationship is that healthy sacred competition allows for the intimacy that sexing allows in the masculine feminine relationship
0: I think it's really profound because you're you're highlighting the relationship between aggression and trust, which I think does translate into Mm. arenas, you're really one of the only men that I've encountered who has like a healthy community of other men. Most Mm. of the men that I know, including most of my colleagues, you know, we, we have allies, right? And the men in my collegial realm have allies as well, who are other men, but to develop bonds and like real community you know, sort of tribe. I mean, certainly there are people doing it, but it's not common. And Mm -hmm. I I think that the, you know, I would say like reclamation of the dark masculine, the predatorial energy as displayed through these different means, it has to be an essential piece of what is missing and why men don't form relationships that are valuable to them with other men very readily, Mm -hmm. because if you can't trust a man who's, you know, whose predator you haven't met. Right. I mean, that's. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, imagine someone who, you know, displays lots of elements of the toxicity of a dark masculine, right? Like, let's say Donald Trump, like imagine me playing basketball or like competing in kendo with Donald Trump. And every time I hit him being like, you're a little too slow and a little too orange, bro. You know, like, what have you been doing? What the fuck have been doing? Yeah. Like, like, can you imagine that? Can you, you, can, you can just feel how fragile he would be and how like he would be unable to do that? You know what I mean? Like, because he's, he doesn't have any brothers that can really test him and actually allow there to be that kind of healthy level of, of competition that, that actually makes him not fragile, but trustable. And I think that's what you see that's that's different, you know, when people who can really actually. But at the same time, like I could imagine doing any variety of sports with RFK, who's super fucking fit. And I could imagine, you know, being out there playing whatever sport it was or whatever thing and being like, you know, you're pretty strong for an old man, but you're a little too old for me. You're past your prime, Bobby. You know, and I could see him laughing. You know, I could see him laughing. And being like, you know, and then getting the ball back and being like, I'm still stronger than you think. I've been in this game for a while, young buck, you know, and then, and then like, I could see the joy of that experience. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like a deep trust with him. Like, I feel like he's, he's the type of person that could enter that arena and I could really like trust them and, and, So that's, it's kind of really like a guide star for me about where the relationships naturally develop, you know, and when I'm around, even those brothers that aren't at the level of like my, you know, other fellow like brother King and peers, there's always some level in which we find it and it can be in any variety of different things. But with Charles Eisenstein, we have pull-up contests, you know, and we'll do that and we'll play pickleball. But then also when you're really better than somebody, it doesn't make sense to like talk shit, but it's to radically celebrate him. So when we're playing pickleball, we're actually pretty close and pull up. So we'll talk shit full out because there's enough closeness. But when we're playing pickleball, he hits a good shot. And I'm like, good fucking shot, Charles. <laughs> like good fucking shot. You know, and like you got to like really there's there's different places for that. Like if they're if you're close and it's like then you want to really challenge them and, and push them and if it's not you want to just celebrate them and bring them up and not like bully them and so that they don't want to play you you want to like encourage them to continue the game and continue the effort so you know this is a foundational piece of i think the brother codes and for me and then also again these ceremonial moments these moments where the times are hard and times are difficult you know to trust that they'll be able to show up and be there for you no matter what and that goes you know that goes for both you know, the men and the women in my life, like everybody who's on, I have a necklace that, you know, signifies all the closest members of my ohana. And we've been in countless ceremonies together. We've seen each other at our most broken and we've seen each other at our most, at our highest and most celebrated moments. And another key element for both of those, you know, regardless of men and women, like you have to surround yourself with people who are radically excited and enthusiastic for your success that are like never jealous but always pumped to watch you shine. You know, so when I go watch Aaron Rodgers play football, you know, I remember a, a game where he played the Dallas Cowboys last year when he was playing for the Packers and amazing fourth quarter comeback down 28 to 14 and they win in overtime and I was just shaking and crying with joy, you know, I was so so happy for him. You know, and I remember that with my friend TJ Dillashaw, when he won the title, and Cody No Love, when he won the title, and all the great athletes, Bodie Miller, when he won the gold. It's like, my, there's no way that my joy was any less than their joy, you know? And I was like, so I remember just tears like flowing and screams of like, like just such radical celebration of them and their mastery. So the competition gets expressed in healthy ways, but it doesn't get expressed in, the toxic ways, which is comparison. And so like one of the guiding statements that I have is, you know, competition is sacred, comparison is profane. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't get out that healthy competition, then you end up in a comparative competition, which is comparing your wealth or comparing your followers or comparing your fame or comparing whatever else it might be that that you're comparing. But when you actually get to compete, then all of that dies away. And then you can just celebrate your brother, your sister's greatness.
0: So absent comparison, like you're talking about compersion, right? Like just like genuinely feeling somebody Mm -hmm. else's pleasure, but absent comparison, where does hierarchy fit in? You know, like Jordan Peterson talks a lot about like the balance of competence and reciprocity. And that seems to be what you're speaking to that (laughs) there is an assessment of each man's competence And there's also the mandate and imperative for reciprocity that you gotta get each other's backs and be there genuinely for each other and serve each other. Do you feel like the hierarchical organization is something to acknowledge and, you know, even intentionally interact with? Or do you think that, you know, it can be problematic? So
1: within a within an organization, you know, like when I was building on it, hierarchy needs to be actually. Established and codified. Everybody needs to know where the hierarchy is. And it also needs to be, it needs, it, you run into big problems when there's somebody who's more competent underneath somebody who's less competent. And that will create resentment and toxicity within the organization. So it has to be a meritocracy of, of competency that creates the hierarchy. But the hierarchy is established and it has to be followed. It's the only way to organize actually, you know, a structure. And I think that's one of the things that's happened is is that hierarchy is ultimately the structure of what I would call empire, which is the kind of the toxicity of what we see now with a certain small number of elites trying to rule and control everybody underneath them. Obviously, they're not doing it in a noble way. Their leadership is not emerging from the field. They're hiding their hierarchy and pretending that they're doing things on people's behalf, but they're really not. But so we've gotten kind of allergic to hierarchy because of the tyrants and the despots and the and these kind of natural aspects of empire. But hierarchy is important for structure, for government, for companies. And the kingdom, the kingdom also has hierarchy. And the kingdom being the opposite, the story of the more beautiful world or heart's is possible, the emergent future that we're heading towards also has to have hierarchy. But in in areas of friendship, there's really a natural hierarchy that occurs that doesn't need to be spoken you know like it just doesn't need to be spoken it's just emergent from the field and when nobody has any ego about it then actually it just happens naturally so let's say we're going out to eat and I'm there and you know Aaron Rodgers is there well I'm a better food orderer You know, I just have a more call. I have a I have a better read of people's desires and appetites when it concerns food. And so, so I get the menu. Nobody argues with me. I order the food for the table, and you know, I'll listen. Anybody have anything that really piques your interest here or whatever? So I'll receive that information, collect that information, and then make an executive decision. So we don't have to all. Crossover five people order the same appetizer. We have too much, like doesn't make any fucking sense. So there's a need for somebody to take the role of collecting the data and making the executive decision. Aaron is a better sommelier than me. He understands wine better than I do. So the wine menu goes to him, you know, like Aaron find us a wine, you know, I'll find us our food. And it's not that we have to, you know, talk about it. We just know actually he knows wine better than me and can read what, you know, read what that's gonna be. I know food better. So it's a very small example. Same with like travel arrangements or something like that. Like I'm very good at reading because I think of my developed queen, you know, I can really read people's, you know, appetites and what would be fun and and see into those situations. And it's part of the vision of the king as well, but it's both. And so I'll be involved in most of the planning of those certain situations. And whether it's Makat or Aaron or whoever, they'll all kind of like, bow and like ob's got this and they get to just relax and then be the jester or be whatever they want to be while this is happening but it just kind of happens naturally based on you know the realization of competency and also the feeling that i don't have to be the best i don't have to be the one that's ordering because that makes me special or whatever And, and i don't have to be I don't have to. I just the best will naturally happen, and we're all in this together. And so we're all we all want to have the best dinner possible. We all want to lead the best, most effective, powerful lives possible. So there's no need to jockey for these small games. You know, it's like when you realize you're all playing a bigger game together. And you know, as Gaffney would once again say, "You're mates, which is you're looking at a shared horizon together of what the shared intention is. Then the natural competency hierarchy will emerge. It'll be emergent from the field and it will flow. And there's times also where, you know, I remember one time with my friend, Jason Strauss, who's like one of the, you know, heads, he was one of the heads of Tao Group and then MGM. And he's a restaurateur and we were in his restaurant. And he was like, you know, what would you like to eat? And I was like, my brother, I'd like you to take care of this. You know, and I hadn't eaten with him, but I could just feel like, he would know how to handle it. Like hospitality and VIP and his awareness of the restaurant. So like gladly, like you take over and it's, it's a great joy for me to relinquish that actually in in competent hands. Whereas other times when I've been around people like, I'll take the ordering. I'm like, it's just not going to be as good, but you know what, like, I'll let you handle it, you know, but there's a way in which I'm like, all right, you know, but you can try. You know what I mean? And I just have a sense of that. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's cool to actually talk and make verbal these things that just exist kind of naturally. And because it's, I think these are the dynamics that would go really unnoticed unless you actually had a conversation like this and talked about it. And then of course, if you were, or anybody listening was actually with, you know, with me and my friends at dinner, you would see how this, how this goes, you know, and then there's the healthy levels of competition, which is we all, you know, all try to figure out how we can, in the most secret way, give our credit card to, you know, the server so that we get to be the one we have the honor of paying for it, you know, and it's like this quiet little competition. And the secret is, is that you do it in a way where nobody knows that you've already done it. And then you try to give your card and they're like, I'm sorry, sir but you know, so-and-so already taken care You've of it. Lost. Like, you, yeah. You lost. You're yeah. like, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, thank you. But then it's like, you got, you got us, but also like, thank you. And that's kind of a, uh, you know, the way that it rolls, but you would now having listened to me, if you were there at dinner, which I'm sure you will be at many dinners that we'll have just as, as friends, you'll be able to look at it and be like, Oh yeah, this is what Aubrey was talking about.
0: I love it. So, so there is comparison. Or, I, what I would register as comparison, it's an assessment, but it sounds like it's like a sober, unspoken assessment that is devoid of judgment and replete with respect. Like, that's what I'm hearing. It's like yeah. there is just a field of mutual respect that you bring to these interactions with other men that allows for what would otherwise be called. I don't know, like a comparative evaluation, right? So I'm better than him. He's better than me. He has more, but it's not in that sort of scarcity consciousness. It's yeah, in it's, the, a, it's,
1: a, it's a natural, natural, yeah, yeah. Right. natural acknowledgement of the highest competency in that area, in that field. With
0: respect for everyone's role, right? Exactly. Like understanding that exactly. everybody has this role. So yeah. something goes really wrong early in a boy's life with regard to these dynamics, especially if that boy is like not encouraged to play team sport, I would imagine. You know, I've been thinking a lot about recently, because you know that I'm very interested in, you know, the PSYOP that's been run on women as far as, you know, feminism goes. And so I've interested myself in how challenging it is for men in the modern moment but then I also think about how boys are raised in most of, you know, in conventional schooling, let's say they're raised in a classroom and that the classroom environment with a teacher in the front, like typically a woman, right. In the front talking at a child who is compliant, obedient, you know, waiting to be told when they can pee and poop and eat. Mm-hmm. So basically in this hyper submissive role, really, even you could invoke, you know, I just finished a book on Marquis de Sade, but there's like a lot of unspoken sadism in in these dynamics, right? And that is like, seems way more costly for boys than it is for girls. Like that seems very, very problematic for a boy's body, for his development and relationship to his own, you know, animating life force energy to be sitting in a chair being talked at by a woman for the greater part of his childhood. So like, when I think about, some of these early childhood issues that we are resolving let's say if i can speak on behalf of women you know this fundamental fear of men that so many of us are walking around with semi-consciously that lead us to henpeck men and micromanage them and disrespect them and you know diminish them and then experience a life of resentment and disappointment i wonder if you have a perspective on like what are some of the enduring imprints from early boyhood that like you and the men that you hang around are still working, you know, working on are still burning off because it's like
1: yeah, it's I've never really thought about that in that way, because to me, it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman who was a teacher. If the teacher was teaching something that I judged to be inane or pointless, and then I was forced to actually comply with listening and learning and understanding this thing but there was no genuine explanation of why this was fucking important to me. Then there was this huge rebellious streak that came in me, you know, that was like, fuck this, like, I don't care, you know, like, and so you just suffer through it. And, you know, it teaches you that sometimes you have to endure things that you're not going to like. And that's part of, I think what Bertrand Russell said is like, the highest virtue of schooling is to teach you to do the things that you don't want to do. And so there is something like, but that needs to be explained. I think actually like what you're learning now is to do something that you don't want to do and to actually apply yourself to something that you're not interested in. And this is actually going to be something that you will find yourself having to do at some point, at some point, you're going to be out of your parents' house and you're going to have to figure out how to do your fucking taxes. And I remember for the first few years before I could hire a proper accounting team, when I was running my marketing company. Just sitting for hours doing over the QuickBooks, balancing the books, figuring out why the numbers weren't mad. I was like, "I hate this so much, you know and but I did it. I was able to do it. and then, you know, by the time I was able to choose my classes in college for the most part, I just chose stuff that I was super interested in, so you know I was philosophy and classical civilizations major. I loved my Latin teacher, so I kept taking Latin and got a minor in Latin and, and I was in theater. And, just doing all of the things that I really love to do so there was there was a natural joy of participating in those classes and in that work and and I would actually go above and beyond what was actually required you know like we were I remember I was in this English literature class where we were studying some old you know Chaucer and we were studying you know Troilius and Cressida and there was some kind of writing assignment for us to write some poem, you know, in kind of the theme of Middle English romance. And I ended up writing, you know, a 20-page rhyming couplet, you know, poem of an alternate ending of Troilus and Cressida, right? Which is kind of a Romeo and Juliet type story with a more warrior in battle. It's like Romeo and Juliet meets Troy, basically. <laughs> And so it was like, I did that out of love, you know, like there was way more than anybody would have asked, but I did that because I was passionate for it. And so even when my friends were going out, you know, drinking, or there was this beer pong match down the hall, or there was this party going on at this dorm or whatever, I'd be like, no, 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 I want to, I want to do this. And then there were certain things that I wasn't interested in, you know, as a philosophy major and this very like precise study of epistemology, how you know what you know. I didn't resonate with that class at all so you know I had to do a thesis about that and I waited to the last minute and I put some shit together and I got a C which is a super unusual I was magna cum laude Richmond I was always doing well but it was because it was like man this fucking class does not resonate I know because I know you know what I mean like I actually had an intuitive sense of my own what what I would call anthroontology, you know through my body, I envision God. I understand the truth because I understand the truth. I don't need to explain to you, you know, all of the intricate details of epistemology. So it was probably the worst grade I got in my entire major. And you know, I remember my professor looking at me like, "You didn't even try." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I don't like this." You know what I mean? There was a, there was an honesty to it. So I didn't. I don't say I had a lot of issues that kind of was brought forth through that because. I was able to assess, all right, there's certain things that I have to do that I don't wanna do. And I know that I'm doing that. And there's certain things that I love, and you know, I'm gonna do those with full passion and full desire. Where actually I had a lot that I had to work through was with my basketball coach. Cause my basketball coach didn't operate the team based upon a meritocracy. He didn't actually play me to the level that, you know, I was capable. I was one of the leading scorers in central Texas. I had the highest, you know, one of the highest three point shooting percentages. I was voted team captain, you know, multiple years. And he still would never play me more than two and a half quarters. And it wasn't because it wasn't fit. It's because he didn't like me. You know, I was always the Cal, I moved from California to Texas. And I was like, I was the California boy, like, Hey, California. I was like, I don't know what you're looking for me, coach, but you know, like, I'm your best fucking player out here, you know, on the offensive side of the ball at the very least. And, you know, I'll I'll give everything for this team. And, and because he wouldn't actually acknowledge that, I had this kind of deep feeling that the masculine in charge wasn't going to be fair. You know, and that lack of like sense of fairness and sense of like, you know, he had so much ego and he would do crazy things. Like the night before a game, we would practice And he would get all nervous and whatever, whatever was going on psychologically, and then keep us, you know, an hour after practice running suicide sprints. And then the next day we'd come out flat and be like, coach, you're a fucking idiot. You know, like, of course, we don't have any legs right now. Of course, they're, you know, running the fast break and they're beating us because you ran us all night last night. You know, so there's areas of that because I really cared about basketball and I really cared about the team that was difficult you know and I had dreams I had dreams about that coach for probably 10 years after I finished playing you know it'd show up so there's things that we carry but to me it was more about you know whether the situation was fair and in in fairness to a lot of teachers I think they're teaching things that they don't love and the teachers that I really liked, they were teaching things that they believed in you know the reason why I kept studying Latin is because The teachers who are teaching Latin, they're teaching Latin because they love it and they believed in it and they believed in the stories. And like my professor, Walt Stevenson, you know, I still talk to him to this day because I like, I love and I still tell the stories he told because he told them with such passion. You know, he would tell the stories of the Roman legions and how they would separate the different classes of soldiers. And he would just get so into it and you'd get this picture painted and I would just be riveted, you know, so I wouldn't skip any of his classes. So schooling can be, you know, schooling can be a really beautiful thing. It's just when a structure is in place that isn't fair, or there's an individual that creates something that's not fair in the field, that that becomes very difficult for me to metabolize.
0: I mean, many would say, you know, I tend towards the conspiracy realist. So many would say that the entire, you know, Rockefeller funded educational system is actually designed to disconnect a child from his or her spirit and their heroes, you know, their yep. sense of trust and alignment with the impulses that course through them. Mm-hmm. Right. So you talk about having really, it seems like retained a relationship to your own heroes, to your own impulse, to, to this trust of your own passions. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that Everyone can say the same, you know, after 12 years of public schooling or whatever it is. I'm going to pause here for a quick second. If you are into the topic of man-woman relating polarity and what the reclamation of Eros has to do with holistic health, then I invite you to check out and download my free ebook on the subject at the link below. And to also check out a blog I wrote that goes deeper into the subject of BDSM, some of the science supporting it. and why these reframes and tools may be exactly what the world needs to move out of confusion, resentment, and victimhood, and into personal empowerment and pleasure. Hope that helps. So like, I wonder, obviously you are a man on mission. I wonder what you say to men who perhaps even by virtue of having been products of the system, are lost when it comes to their passion, their interests, their purpose. Like what are the breadcrumbs you could sprinkle, you know, that, that bring them back home to a dynamic relationship with, I mean, I would call that your inner feminine, right? Like a relationship that is trusting and loving to what it is that animates you, shows you in many ways, like what you're here to do. And then all the competencies that you bring make manifest from that place. But what happens, you know, when somebody just doesn't know, you know, like, do you encounter men like that who are just.
1: I encounter lost? men who are, who are, you're frustrated. Cause I was there, you know, I was frustrated in that. I knew that I had a greater gift to give to the world, but I couldn't find a way to give it in a way that it was received. You know, it was like, I had, you know, again, to use the sexual to model the erotic, I had a raging cock. And I was looking to fuck the world and there was no feminine chalice that wanted, that was arousing the feminine waters enough, who was inviting me to fuck it open. You know, there was, I couldn't figure it out. And every time I would go, I would find a brick wall rather than a a yearning yoni, you know, to actually. (laughs) So I think that's, that's going to be a part of the process where you're actually You know, you may have access to your fuck, which I did, but I just couldn't find a way that actually the the goddess at large, Gaia Sophia, you know, or the the collective or the collective feminine of the world was like actually eager to receive my fuck. You know, I just couldn't line up where that was. And part of that is just, you know, developing a, a greater attunement to listening to what the feminine at large is asking for from you what your own gifts are and just exploring you know figuring it out you know trying to understand you know what works in the smallest level like what inspires your friends like what topics of conversation when you're talking about people are like wow that's really interesting and if you continue to do that and develop your own self-mastery then you're going to find places where there's that again proverbial yoni that's ready to receive you know what the the thrust of information energy et cetera that you have to offer and you know i found that only in sport really until i was about 30 and occasionally like my writing would really touch people my poems people were like whoa that was or my conversations but it still wasn't working and i got you know really pretty depressed actually I thought I'd really fucked everything up. I was like, look, I'm somewhere along this path, I went left when I should have gone right. And, you know, I fucked it up. So, you know, but I kept trying. I just kept, I kept at it. And I kept trying a different thing, a different thing, a different thing until finally I found something that really worked. I found allies that could help me. And I found, the, you know, the field that I could actually start to start to penetrate the world with. And I think that's the, that's the deepest masculine craving is we want to penetrate the world. You know, that's to ferret. That's the masculine principle. So it's just, there's going to be a period where, you know, you're still a young man and you don't know how to, you know, fuck the mature woman of the collective. And so you just have to keep becoming a better lover, someone who's going to actually listen and read and then apply your fuck in a way that it's received. And that's a process, you know. So, my advice to the younger men is like, stick with it, keep honing your mastery, you know, get to the point where you have something that the world is really craving from you.
0: The yearning yoni of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Such a good alliterative phrase. And what would you say, advice wise, to like new parents of a boy? Right? Like, I have two daughters, I have no ground to stand on. You know, with any degree of confidence when it comes to advising people who have sons. And I know that this is one of the most important undertakings, you know, available in the current moment Mm -hmm. is to raise sons properly and to resolve a lot of the inculturated fear, you know, that women have of men and therefore their own sons that might lead them to, you know, energetically, spiritually, emotionally castrate them. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, you talk about a man who's in touch with his fuck, but there are so many who literally have coupled that with so much danger that they don't have contact with it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's probably two sides of the same coin, you know, this like reckless wielding of that energy and this sort of total disconnection from it. But I wonder, you know, if you have friends who, you know, have, let's say a little boy they're raising, you know, what is it that you would imagine is essential for them to bear in mind, just given the, the trials and tribulations that you know, or maybe I maybe mean, uh, they're all necessary, but that could be avoided, <laughs> you know, yeah,
1: or yeah, avoid yeah, growing for, into manhood. I think with my, you know, so first of all, with my father, it's really, you know, what I see a lot of times with fathers, with children is somehow the child is disconnected from connecting with the eros of the father, right? And for whatever reason, that was the opposite of my experience. You know, when my dad was like really one of the reasons why I love sports so much, is my dad loved sports. Like he loved competing. And when he would play basketball with his friends, you know, I would be out there watching him play and I had a little side goal on the side and I'd be shooting around, but I was too little to play. But I would see how passionately he was playing and how intense he was. And I loved it. And I just loved watching him and I loved watching him compete. And he modeled for me the Eros of competition. And so, I then stepped into the Arasa competition and I would compete with my dad. Eventually I got good enough to play in the three-on-three basketball in the backyard. And I got good enough to play tennis with him. And I got good enough to play chess with him and play scrabble with him and do all of these things. And that was, that was huge because in those moments, I would have the radical presence and attention of my father. And I would also be able to engage in what he loved. And so he modeled something for me that was really important there. And then he also cared about my you know what i was doing in a way like he remember like you know my dad had really bad sciatica for about a year and a half and couldn't actually sit down in a seat he had to like lay down and this was when i was playing middle school basketball and he cared so much about my basketball it's middle school basketball it's not a big deal But he would have them, you know, he would talk to the school and he would roll in like basically like a small mattress, like a fold up mattress. And he would lie in the side of the gym, lie down and watch me play in the gym, lying down on a mattress just to see just to see me play. And it was like he fucking cared. And yeah, sometimes, you know, he would like. Sometimes he would be a little more loving if I did good than if I didn't, but he didn't mean to. But, and so I had to, I had to deal with that, you know, this idea that I'm only loved by the masculine if I'm performing my best. And he wasn't trying to do that, but he couldn't help himself. So there was a little bit of work that I had to do there, but I think I got to, I was just radically interested in conversations and also the things he was interested in. Also, my father always treated me, didn't treat me like a child. He treated me like a young adult. So if him and my stepmom, he got with my stepmom when I was seven, if they were talking about their friends who are having a relationship issue or having something, even as an eight-year-old, he would ask me, what do you think? You know, what do you think? You know, I was Chris back then, but what do you think? And I'd be like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And my dad would be like, you know, I like the way you're thinking about this, but have you thought about this? And I'd be like, no, I didn't think about that. And so he would work with me. And then eventually by you know, by like 11 or 10 or 11, like I was able to contribute and actually have insight that was valuable and he would recognize it. And so I became a part of the conversation. So I loved dinner time, you know, this this kind of model where, and I don't know what the difference was because with my little brother, I watched him and he, was, he would never get into it. You know, we'd be having conversation. My dad would try to do the same thing and try, but he just wasn't into it. I think it was also part of the digital distraction era. He had a video game that he wanted to play, or a Game Boy, and then they, they kind of pandered to that in a way. They were like, "All right, just eat your food, and you can go back to playing your game." But it didn't yield the same kind of connective experience that I had, where I like was eager to hear what what the conversation was and eager to contribute. And you know, I loved dinner time. I loved the the moments where I got to got to talk. And then on the maternal side, I think one of the things that can be really damaging is that kind of devouring overprotective mother. Like your kids are gonna, they're gonna fall. They're gonna, they're gonna get hurt. You know, you don't want the, we well, don't want those injuries to be death. You know, like you want to put some boundaries on things that's that are- shy really of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like anything that's going to be like really potentially like a deadly decision, of course. Like keep those boundaries really firm, but everything else, like let your kids make mistakes, let your kids fall, let them get hurt and like let them learn and then when they do don't be in there shaming them just be trust that they're actually learning the lesson and that that's a necessary part because otherwise they then you can also start to build you know dishonesty like no matter what i was doing no matter what drug i was trying or no matter what party i was doing you know i didn't have to lie to my parents i could always talk to them about it and so there was no split between what i was actually sharing with my parents and how they were receiving it and there were still boundaries on you know if i would overstep something throw a party that was too big or something when they were gone or was being reckless in some way they'd be like yo come on you know and i would and i would be bummed i'd be bummed that i disappointed them and i would know like yeah i went too far you know they wouldn't need to punish me you know i remember i remember one time my parents they were like you're grounded for the weekend. I'm like, what? Like, what What are you even even talking about? Like, do you not understand that I learned the lesson and I get it and I didn't want to disappoint you and I never want to disappoint you because I love you. I don't need any punishment. This is stupid. And I I argued with them relentlessly, but they decided they were going to give it a try. And so I remember, and I was like, this is just bullshit. Like, you're not seeing me. You're not seeing that actually, like, I get it and i learned you know i learned that that was the
0: natural f- consequences yeah exactly
1: yeah. you know and there didn't need to be a there didn't need to be a, an additional punishment on top of that and yeah i think that was kind of how i was raised and it was really a beautiful way to be raised there was no that's literally the only time that i remember a punishment and i also remember the grace of forgiveness you know when like i remember i i one time i wanted to i wanted to drive my stepmom's car when she was out of town and I was like, oh, she had a Mercedes. And like, I go to leave the garage. And I'm like 18, it's fast Mercedes. And I was like, I'm gonna go drive this car. And I was like a little bit nervous. I knew it was a little bit naughty because I didn't ask. They probably would have let me do it if I asked. But I was like, I'm just gonna do it. And I'm leaving the car and I'm backing out, looking behind me. And then I sideswiped the f- side of the garage. I'm like, oh my God, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> you know, and in that moment, they could have just really hammered me. You know, but they're like, it's just a car. Like, Mm. it's just a car. Like, don't worry. Because I was beating myself up so bad and they could see that. And it was like, it's just a car. Don't worry. This is like one of the things that kids do. And it's okay. You know, and I was like, oh. But because of that, like, I learned also the grace and forgiveness. and, And they didn't like overhammer a situation, which would teach me how to be, I was already hard enough on myself. You know, so I didn't need to learn more shame, you know about a situation where clearly I was aware that I made a mistake. so I mean, I was really blessed with how I was raised, to be honest. and so, if any of those stories can give guidelines, I think that's really important. And also, you know, look, sometimes your kids may get in a fight. You know, my father taught me martial arts from when i was and had me learn when i was when I was like four years old and but because I was in a disciplined practice, like He's like, there's there's going to be a time to fight, and then there's a time where you don't fight. And despite an extremely high level of competency in fighting, I only have gotten in one street fight in my whole life. You know, even in the schoolyards and everything. I mean, there were certain situations where I had to be physical, you know, but I was able to be physical and squell a situation in a way that didn't require actual fighting. And then, you know, one time. There was just no choice you know the group of guys one of them slammed my fiance at the time her name was caitlin slammed her face into the side of my car and there was four of them and it was just a full fury of everything that i was everything that i trained my whole life and you know it was it was a rough fight but you know we ended up on our feet and we were bloody but you know they ended up running away and and we were we were okay you know and so of all of the years you know, of training martial arts. There was only one instance where I had to use it thus far, but the, the feeling of confidence that I could right. change, yeah. change the very foundation of my nature. Like I was, I'm not, I'm not scared in those situations. And I've watched many times where there was an imminent conflict and I've stepped forward and been like, if you want to do this, you know, like basically all my energy, whatever I said is like, if you want to do this, this is going to go bad. Like, this is going to go really bad for you. And then I've watched a lot of people like recognize that and like back away, especially people who have this kind of street awareness of someone's confidence. You know, like they recognized I was not prey and maybe they were confident in their ability as a fighter, but they knew that this was no easy out, that, you know, they better pack a lunch because I wasn't going anywhere. And this was going to be, this was going to go down to the, I was willing to fight to the death and I knew what I was doing. And so those situations have really, prepared me to be competent in a variety of situations and I'll feel in my body when there's a situation so I guess this is kind of an encouragement for you know training your sons to be competent in in martial arts there's not a lot of times where you're going to actually have to fight but there's countless times where my confidence and my ability to has actually adjusted what happened in the situation so it's an encouragement to like get your sons in in some kind of martial arts training so that they're they're confident and that they can be a protector and i'll feel things kind of even if i'm out drinking and i'm a little buzzed if i feel the energy get a little sketchy or predatory or i see people kind of circling our group as i've been blessed to be around many beautiful women and for many years of my life and i'll feel something happen i'll feel a certain sobriety set in Mm -hmm. and i'll feel myself become hyper aware of my surroundings and i put my drinks down and I'm like, all right, we're in a situation that's just gotten a little bit tense. And so I'm just, I'm ready and I'm vigilant. You know, that comes from, you know, competency, awareness, and just training the training myself to be able to handle a variety of situations and testing myself in, in as many ways as possible. That's another thing is when I was 18, my father sent me on a psychedelic vision quest initiation, 18, you know, and so that's a huge, huge initiatory practice. And continuing to do those initiations, like I know myself in the deep. I know what's gonna happen if someone comes to fight me. I know that I'll come back and fight. I know myself in confronting a demon in the astral as well as a demon in the physical. Like I understand how to stand and how to fight and how to receive attack both physical or on social media. You know, which certainly for those of us who've been standing in the last four years, You know, or even recently as I stand for RFK, like the arrows come and, you know, you just have to be ready to be like, all right, like this is the nature of the game.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's such, such valuable. That's really an extraordinary like compendium of the elements that have made you who you are. And I I heard a lot in there about a relationship to failure, you know, which I think Mm -hmm. is probably. Not being a man, I imagine is one of the most important masteries is to develop, you know, like even when you got in trouble with the car, oh my God, I got to just feel, I think I did similar shit, feel <laughs> that moment. Oh, uh,
1: it was but... I actually tried to time travel in that moment. <laughs> I literally thought like, if I close my eyes right, and I, with all my intent, go back in time, I'll, this will be a dream and I'll wake up and this didn't happen. <laughs> And I thought I almost got there. Your <laughs> was wizard like,
0: archetype is coming Yeah, out. I was
1: like, I'm going to time travel back and this is just a dream and it didn't happen. Of course I was unsuccessful. So
0: good, but, but the way you were received, I mean, that is an imprint around failure that yeah, totally. is invaluable, you know, to be received in that way for your humanness and for your intention, right? I, when we can be seen for our intention, even when we fuck up, even when we fail as men or women, It makes all of the difference so i love i love hearing that it's my last question you talked a little bit about your experience of attunement like through your body vessel right Mm -hmm. to your environment and how so much of that inner awareness was cultivated like from a very young age for you and you know that i love david data's teachings and he talks about how a man's body right so you you and i both celebrate the differences between men's bodies women's bodies right and that a man's body actually is a completely different terrain than a woman's mm. body and one of the challenges in dyadic you know heterosexual dynamics is that we project and we conflate right and we can get into this egalitarian mindset of like well your body must feel like mine and my body must run you know like yours and he talks a lot about how a man's body often can have like no emotions at all, <laughs> like nothing mm. happening in there. And I have done many, many, many family constellations, group family constellations. And I have not surprisingly been chosen as a father, probably more than a dozen times, like mm. people's fathers, right? So I have played that part. And it's probably the closest that I've come to having any empathic bridge to how different a man's system might be, you know, if this field has, you know, validity, and mm-hmm. I, I, I happen to believe in it. And what I would feel in those experiences is like, like a cavernous, like an echoey, cavernous, open vessel inside of me that was not, f- not the same as the numbness that I'm pretty familiar with, and mm-hmm. it felt different. And so I thought to just ask you a bit about that, you know, like what is it like to be in? A man's body, how do you imagine it's different than you know what it's like to be you know your woman in her body, and particularly with regard to emotional energies, right? Like do they just like fly on stage and you know require immediate suppression or are they kind of just like rattling around in the background and you can pay attention or you don't have to like what is it like on the daily to just be in a man's body? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's not as dissimilar as I think you might imagine, at least for me. Like I, I'm also, you know, I'm a very watery being, I have a very highly developed feminine. So, you know, I cry in a film probably more readily than any of my partners, you know, like, um the tears are always close. And I think that's an element to, you know, my brothers that I also really appreciate is like, I want to know that the tears are, close to the surface because that means you're really alive. You're really feeling. And that's, I think, one thing that gets reflected to me probably more than anything else, is how often people have seen me in this in these vulnerabilities. I mean, my percentage of crying on podcasts is like absurd. It's got to be like 60% at least of every podcast. Like at some point I'll reach tears because I really passionately feel, you know, and that's part of my I went by the moniker Warrior Poet, and Warrior Poet was like a guide star, you know, so like I have on my ribs, that's hard to see, but it's a big samurai, and this represents my warrior, and then I have my flowers, my roses, so it's hard to see here, but roses, which represents like the deep feeling nature of who I am and my grandmother on my other So even what I wear on my body is in balance, you know, it's the warrior here and the grandmother and the moon and, you know, a necklace that my mother gave me. And so I'm trying to cultivate that balance. And within that balance, I think I can really feel similarly to how the feminine feels because I'm in touch with my feminine. I mean, we're all the body of the goddess, whether you have a cock or whether you don't have a cock, you're still the goddess, you're still the mother, you're still made up of her parts of her recycled wolf fur and shark teeth and hummingbird feathers and sweet grass and you're all a part of the same thing so it's it can and should be a lot more similar than i think people realize now we do have a cock and this is where the problems for me really have had probably the most work to work through is because i had a strong Conflation and connection between my performance in bed with the, you know, firmness of my cock. And if my cock let me down, then like I was no longer a man and my fuck was no longer able to meet the fuck of, you know, the goddess. And I let the goddess down. And to me, like letting the goddess down, because I had such a beautiful relationship with my, mo- I love the goddess. Like my relationship with my mother and my grandmother were unbelievable. And so, my deep passion and love for the goddess, like I want to please her. And I learned from the masculine in unhealthy ways that, and I think culture says this, that the way you please the woman is with a hard cock and like the vigorous, the vigorous sexing that comes from, you know, penetrative sex. And what I've really had to learn is to kind of separate my fuck from my cock. And unsurprisingly, when I've separated my fuck from my cock, then my cock and my fuck actually have no, there's no dissonance between them, you know, so it actually, it actually moves in a chord. And that's been some of the great teachings from some of the great teachers like Layla Martin, you know, and Liz Letchford and, you know, Emily Fletcher and Mama Gina, they'll, they'll be trying to actually reconnect your essence to your cock by actually separating them first and understanding that this is your fuck and that's what's important and that the woman can be ravaged by your fuck regardless of what's happening. And so that's been like a real journey for me. And I feel like really blessed that I've made it through the other side of that journey. So I don't go into any sexing with trepidation, like don't betray me now, buddy, like, like we gotta be. And there was this kind of like issues be like, no, I'm gonna ravage you no matter what. Like whatever happens like you're going to feel the fullness of my fuck regardless of the situation and you're going to know that you're going to feel the you know the full feeling of being fucked open by me regardless of whether we have penetration or not and that's allowed me just the freedom to take all of the pressure and anxiety that's come with sexuality off the table and really like allowed me to step into the next level of my of my sexing and also my confidence as a man, you know, because it's not related to my penis.
0: I just finished an interview for the podcast with River Roaring, who's a sex worker, former attorney. And we talked about, she calls it boner shame, you know, this agenda, you know, that is socioculturally imposed on boys where their bodies are literally not allowed to animate naturally, right? And they have to stay within this like very structured disconnection. You know, yeah. this part of them, their cock cannot be moving <laughs> in inappropriate right. ways at any time in their life, right? Like she talks about how like a woman can walk down the street, like feeling the breeze, like looking at a flower, pussy dripping. And that's encouraged, right? It's like socially celebrated, especially in this moment. But a man's supposed to be, you know, this this kind of man all the time or a boy, but when he gets into the bedroom, that's when the cock animates and only there, right? right? right. Like right. that is very tall order. no pun intended. Like that's that's not fair. <laughs> it's not yeah. fair. Yeah. And so I am so be... glad you're talking about it because this you can't be alone in encountering. No,
1: definitely not. And surprisingly, whenever I share these discussions, like overwhelmingly men are like, Yeah, like this is heavy. You know, this way is really heavy. I just, you know heard a story from a lover and the story was that you know her in her in a previous relationship her man was like very you know she he he basically had difficulty with his sexing so he would come like really fast he would, like super premature ejaculation and then his response was to shame her for her sexual desire and then be like mean to her and distant And then start to gaslight and like respond in these really toxic ways because he was in turn, he had so much internal shame that he would project it outwards. And then so she's had to like really come to terms and realize, like, wow, that really fucked me up actually, you know, and actually altered my connection to myself because of the way that, you know, the way that this whole situation happened. And so there's the sympathy for her for what she had to deal with. And also the like, yeah, fuck that guy. But also, man, that poor guy. Like the poor guy, like what he was actually going through is deep and so intense. And he obviously didn't handle it in a good way, but men don't have anybody to talk to about that. Like, that's also one of the areas that until you get real friendship with people that you can actually share that kind of thing with, you know, they're not going to like your brothers will be there to actually, you actually have a place to talk to your brothers and talk to whoever about it. Like you have to be able to open up and discuss whatever happened. you know, I think of like someone like Kyle, you know my friend Kyle Kingsbury, and like no matter what it is, no matter what's going on, like we can always talk about it and laugh, same with Aaron Alexander, like no matter what it is, we can talk about it and laugh and not laugh at each other but laugh together, you know, just be like, yeah, I know <laughs> you know like like this is this is uh so I think. Just taking the shame that shrouds all of this in secrecy and keeps it in a black box and being able to open it up is the way that we heal through this stuff together.
0: I love it. I love it. And I've, you know, we've talked about how my, my teacher Omar Pani, says that men don't need help feeling their feelings. I think you have expressed that, right? Like your heart's here, it's here, it's open, it's ready, it's flowing. And that what is needed for a lot of men is help reclaiming their spine, right? Like help yeah. with that discipline, with that healthy predatorial energy with that competition. And you, you model that. So extraordinarily, you are an inspiration to me. And I know to so many people in your community that you touch on like such a humble level. And I feel really, really blessed to walk this path with you. I'm so grateful that we got to chitty chat this conversation. So I just want to, yeah, give you the mic one last time and for you to share like what you're lit up about and what you're working on, what you're putting your, your vital force energy Cool. Well, I think
1: I'm most excited about right now is we have our Arcadia Festival and that's going to be at Area 15 in Nevada. And
0: I'll have to talk about this. This is on the same weekend as my event.
1: Oh, never mind then. Because <laughs> I invited Gailana. In
0: I invited your <laughs> woman to my event in Miami and that's when I learned about Arcadia. No, please share. It's a different different audience.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> if you're not going to Kelly's event, we're going to we have just like, unbelievable musical lineup unbelievable guests and we're really just trying to anchor in what it feels like to live in the kingdom in the more beautiful world and last year was just outrageous and i'm just really excited it's it's through fit for service but it's a different container different program so yeah anybody interested fit slash arcadia with a k and yeah so if you're not a kelly's then <laughs> you want to go have some fun it looks here.
0: amazing yeah. as always i mean everything yeah. you do is just top shelf we have fun so. we have fun oh my god so. yes we do So good. Thank you. And I will talk to you soon. All right.
1: Sounds good.